Hi, welcome to the cottage. We are a lively outpouring of an exciting adventure into God's riches and glories in Christ Jesus. We really work to activate an excitement for the kingdom of God as it is in the now until it comes into its fullness. We invite you to our sessions to explore the heights and depths of God's love in a fuller bandwidth. I'm Dr. Ken, the pastor of a small independent church seeking to return to the Lord's zeal in times where apathy and lethargy rule the day of the complacent. We try to shake things up and offer a temporary home as we travel this sod until we reach higher ground and connect into the everlasting life from above, here on the earth as it is in heaven. For more information, you can email us at thecottage at dken.cc. That is thecottage at dken.cc. Hi, welcome back to the cottage. We're continuing after Easter, and we're going to do an episode today on fishers of men. I want to do this in honor of my father, who fished for many years, and so it's exciting for me to be able to bring this message. Fishers of men. And we're going to begin with gone fishing. This is now after the resurrection. And I want to remind those that at the resurrection, the first appearance of Jesus is to women. Of all things, the women, remember, they go early to the tomb. And one of the things that they discuss with Jesus is he tells them to tell his disciples that they are planning to meet in Galilee as planned. That he had told them, remember, I will meet you in Galilee. And so, we're going to discuss that tonight. We're in John chapter 21, beginning in the third verse. And Simon Peter saith unto him, I go a-fishing. And they say unto him, We also go with thee. And so, it's signaling a lot of things here. Number one, we talked about Galilee. We talked about a Christmas message. Again, that's not been recorded, but we tried to review that on Easter Sunday in several of our services trying to tie you in the geography of the land, trying to get you to understand what it means. And so he's gone back to what he used to do, gone back to Galilee. And such the extent that this chapter, in this chapter, John wants you to go back. He's warning you such that Matthew 4.18 says, And Jesus, walking by the sea of Galilee, saw two brethren, Simon, called Peter and Andrew his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishers. And so this is bringing us back to the very beginning. They've come full circle. Jesus has died. And it shows, depicts the disciples having returned to their former way of life. Uh, full circle, kind of gone back. Uh, it's interesting, like I said, that some of the accounts obviously have the disciples in Jerusalem. And Jesus appeared to the disciples over a 40-year period after his resurrection. And then he ascends, and 10 days later we have the Feast of Pentecost. That's 50 days after first fruits. And so we have this concept that it's returning us to Galilee. It's there in Galilee sometime during this 40-day period, and then they're going to get told to go back to Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father, and everything's going to happen at Pentecost. So it's pointing us from the cross from the resurrection on Easter Sunday to Pentecost, 
So this is grabbing, but it's again grabbing this Galilee, which is interesting, that keeps popping up in our geography. So it's important to pay attention to the geography. And, of course, it takes us back to what happened. Also in verse 3, it says, They went forth and entered a ship immediately, and that night they caught nothing. And so there we go. We have this idea that they caught nothing. And it harkens back to, say, for instance, the passage in Luke chapter 5, verse 5, telling the same story. And Simon answered and said unto him, Master, we have toiled all the night and have taken nothing. Again, the same thing. Nevertheless, at that word, I will let down the net for a catch. So we know in John 21, 3, they catch nothing. They have nothing. Interesting to note that Jesus is on the seashore. Uh, he's on the shoreline, and he's there on the shoreline, and uh, as he's there, he has fish already himself, and he's making breakfast for the disciples. Kind of interesting. They're having fish for breakfast. And so it's interesting that he has fish, and they do not. And it harkens back to when Luke 5, when he had known of the fish. Of course, we know that later on, they do have fish, they do get a catch, and what happens in the rest of the chapter. Now, at the moment, I want to skip ahead. I want to return to this catch of fish later. But at the moment, I want to go to John 21:19, still letting you know that we're still in the same lane. We're still in the same trajectory where he is definitely wanting them to get this instance. And so in John 21:19, it says... This he spake, signifying by what death he should glorify God. So Jesus is talking to Peter about things that are going to happen to Peter, signifying how Peter is going to die. Okay? And so this is what's going on. So Jesus gives a prophecy to the apostle Peter about how he's going to die, and that he's going to live old, you know? And so Peter's, again. But then Jesus hearkens back to again. He's, he's, he's reminiscing John chapter 21, the Holy Ghost, John, the author, the apostle, Jesus. He's, the whole thing is to get you to look back at the beginning. Because verse 19 continues and says, And when he had spoken this, he saith unto them, Follow me. Follow me. Harkening back again to what we know. Now, in verse 22... There's some discussion by Peter about John. He wants to know what's going to happen to John. And Peter's like, don't worry about John. Peter, don't you worry. Jesus said unto him in verse 22, If I will that he tarry till I come, what is that to thee? Which obviously he didn't. But Jesus is saying, speaking hyperbolically, If I want him to wait, what's it to you? Yes, you're going to die. I'm not going to explain what's going to happen to John. You, Peter, you. Follow me. Now, it's in the King James, you're going to notice, we have an interesting thing here because we have in verse 19, follow me, and that would be, uh, again, follow thou me. we got singular. He's speaking specifically to Peter and it's harking back to Matthew 4:19, And he saith unto them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. So in the beginning, when Jesus called them initially, he used this language of follow me, and he's using it to make them fishers of men. Now, this is very important. 
for what John is doing in this chapter. Now, I think you're familiar with what's going on here to some extent at this point. I've left out some details because I want to go back and I want to bring them out for you in this teaching. And so, Fishers of Men obviously hearkens to the Great Commission in Matthew 28, 18-20, where the end of Matthew, this is the end of John, the end of Matthew has a similar thing where it says, And Jesus came and spake unto them, saying, All power is given unto me in heaven and earth. Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the world. Amen. So we know what it means to be fishers of men. But see, John is writing, the purpose of his writing the gospel is that those come to faith. And John is trying to use his gospel specifically, as he says, that I'm using this gospel so that you might believe. So John is trying to be a fisher of men, even with his gospel. And that's why many people use the gospel of John as a tool for evangelism to reach out to people on behalf of the Great Commission to get them to understand who Jesus is. So where does John begin now? I want to take you back to the beginning. It's interesting to note that John, in John chapter 1, verse 12, it says, But as many has received him to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, we have been talking about this, and if you go back to our last service on Wednesday, Under His Wings, that you can get in this uh, broadcast, you, you can get it through a, a previous broadcast, it's listed, Under His Wings. Go back to listen to that message, and in that message I discussed that message, my mother who likes to collect angels, that angels actually do not have wings. But there are other supernatural spiritual beings that do. They're not angels. They're classified as higher spiritual beings. The angels are lower level supernatural beings on this side of God. Where we have these other creatures like seraphim and cherubim and whatnot that have wings. So therefore they would have feathers as we discussed in that episode. These are known as sons of God. And we're going to get into that. John goes on and he talks about them as John eleven fifty two. He talks not only, uh, not for that nation only, but that he should also gather together one, the children of God that were scattered abroad. This is a reversal language of what happens uh, with Pentecost, where Pentecost is the coming of the Holy Ghost. The speaking in tongues in the languages were gathered at Jerusalem are many people scattered across the Roman Empire. And the language is precise. In Acts chapter 2, that's tying it back to what happened at the Tower of Babel, that's listed in Genesis 10, those nations, and the, what happens in their scattering in chapter 11. And so, the text in Acts 2 wants you to go back to Genesis 10, 11 and understand that the known world in that part of the world in that day the entire world for that part of the world, as they understood it, as the listeners of the readers of the original manuscripts that were written down, the messaging was that for that part of the world that you're from, that you know, that from that, not just the nation of Israel only, but that God would, through Jesus, also gather together in one, reversing what happened at the Tower of Babel, 
by sending out others. And Peter preaches on Acts chapter 2, and at Pentecost, 3,000 people get saved, and it lists many of the nations that are listed in the table of nations in Genesis 10. So you, the the Holy Ghost wants you, the Luke writing Acts chapter 2 wants you to understand God is one you can understand in that moment, each person that's there, that he is going back after those nations that were lost at Babel. That's not just for Abraham and his children alone, but it is for all those who were lost. And he's wanting to bring them together as family. Now, we talked a lot on Easter Sunday about family. So this is what I'm trying to point out here. And this phrase, sons of God or children of God, had it been in the Hebrew, because this again, your New Testament was written in Greek, but it is constantly looking back to the previous Testament, known as the Hebrew Bible for the Hebrews, that's their Bible, and it's constantly going back to their scriptures. And so when it uses these phrases, it's hearkening back to something in that Testament. And we have that as the phrase, the sons of God, the children of God, the B'nai Ha-Elohim. And this is how you would see it in the Hebrew letters. And this is the phrase, the sons of God, the B'nai Ha-Elohim. Okay, the sons of God. And this is what is being grabbed onto. So it's, it's how they would have understood it when they would have read this. They're thinking of this group of people. And he's going to make them one from all nations. So he's going to combine his supernatural family and his earthly family. So let's go back through this again. John chapter 1, verses 12 to 14. But as many as received him, to them he gave power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name, which were born not of blood. This is not about Abraham's blood pumping in their veins. Nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man. Known this is not twelve tribes, but this is those born of God, all of creation. And anyone that experiences what Nicodemus was trying to understand in chapter 3 about being born again, born a second time, but it's also in the Greek that phrase born again means born from above, spiritual family, that God does something there. And Jesus himself, the word was made flesh. Jesus, the heavenly God, the father, God, the son, came down to earth and became human so that we could experience what he is. He became like us so that we could become more like him, that we could become godly. And so that, you know, we don't become exactly him, obviously, but we become like him. Okay? So we're, we're, the word was made flesh, the word dwelt among us. So that phraseology is used here. But notice how John continues this idea in John chapter 17, verse 20. Neither pray I thee for these alone, the twelve apostles, which represent the twelve tribes, but for them also which shall believe on me through the word. And Peter is going to preach in Acts 10. And Cornelius' house is going to get saved. Philip preaches in Acts 8. And Peter and John come down and give impart the Holy Ghost into them in Samaria. Philip preaches and then he gets baptized, the Ethiopian. So this is going to be a global thing. Anyone who believes. Okay, I'm setting this all up so you understand this is language tied to family okay just like we talked about easter go back to our easter sunday message mm 
Go back to the last Wednesday night under the wings. Understand that God has two families. And I did the Easter message on Hebrews chapter 2 as a tribute to my mentor, Dr. Michael S. Heiser, Ph.D., who passed away. And we're doing his memorial service uh, next week. And so I'm going to attend that and be a part of that. And so going there and then also I want to pull something out that he does with John chapter 21. And this is important. We have to understand two questions when it comes to the fish in John chapter 21. There's something hiding, lurking beneath the surface. I'm, I'm actually trying to put out the bait so you'll bite and I'm fishing. And hopefully you're going to be able to understand what's going to happen here. Two questions that we're looking at. First of all, how many fish were there? And so, uh, unfortunately, we had technical difficulty and the, the audio did not work for the service. And so I'm re-recording this. But during the service, people scrambled and it took them time. But eventually, someone got the John chapter 21, verse 11. And you may not know how many fish there were. And there were people that did get close because it does say there was a number of fish and the fish broke the nets and things. And so there was always, and there were rather large fish to boot. But it's interesting. You will get in verse 11 of John chapter 21, the precise number of fish. And it's interesting. Why does John want us to know the precise number of fish? Why such a specific number? And so if you go and you read John chapter 21, verse 11, you will find out how many fish were in there. And I did the hard work for you because I told you it's in verse 11. But I could have done it easier. And so we're going to have to add all this up and we're going to do some ancient math. Now, ancient math is different because ancient math has a, an affinity because they don't have numbers. So they have an affinity with letters that they do something special, Okay. And so each letter represents a number. So they have a zero through nine is represented, or one through nine, whatever, is represented by certain um, letters. And then you have, going onwards, then you have a way to express tens, hundreds, thousands. And so that's how they do it. And then those who want to play, there's an ancient practice called gematria where they play with this, okay? And they add the letters of the Hebrew phrase, uh, you know, to a precise amount. And so what we're trying to say here is in John chapter 21, verse 11, we come up with a precise number. And if you were, there's scholars that have done all kinds of things with that numbers, and none of them have been convincing. And the most convincing understanding of that number is by using gematria, where you find a something that we could add up that adds up to that total. So I'm going to give you another example. The most famous gematria in all of the scripture, and probably because of that, all of the world, is from Revelation chapter 13, verse 18. It says, Here's wisdom. Let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast. There it is, right there in verse 18. It's telling you to count the number. It's telling you to do the math, do the arithmetic, to count the number. Right there, it's letting you know that this is gematria. In the language itself, it's saying count the number of the beast. For it is the number of a man. Which man? Who? It is specifically pointing out a man. Which man is it pointing to? And that man's number 
if you did gematria with his name is adds up to 600 three score and six and we all know this to be 666 so whose name if we were to do gematria and add up the letters that correspond in his name what do they add up to well first of all i want to show you what 666 looks like in the greek alphabet okay in the greek alphabet you have this is the number you have three letters and when you add those three letters you get 666 because you've got the the hundreds and the 60 and you have the you know 660 and six so you have the letters that respond to those that correspond to those and that's how we get it notice we're not using any numerals here we're using letters letters represent numerical values in ancient languages like greek and hebrew such that they use letters to do math because they didn't have numbers okay so uh, according to uh, craig keener on this verse in the niv background study bible he talks about this and it says people in the empire played on the number nero caesar in greek letters there's two ways to spell nero caesar in hebrew if you were to spell nero caesar's name in hebrew there's two ways to do it. one comes out to 666 our number here and the other comes to 616 some manuscripts of the book of revelation have here 616 instead of 666 as if some knew the riddle's answer but calculated it differently so they are preserving this idea because there's two different ways to spell Nero's name in using Hebrew letters. Remember, Nero is a Caesar. Nero Caesar is the emperor at the time. And he is a Roman, which is Latin. And the Bible's New Testament is written in Greek. But if we were to use Hebrew letters to spell out Nero Caesar, and there's two ways you can do that. One way, it would add up to 666 if you added up the number, just what it says. Let's go back. Count, let him that hath understanding. you got to have understanding. And I'm giving you the understanding and unlock this. Count the number of the beasts. And I'd love to do the book of Revelation sometime as a study, but it's not going to be what most people think because most people have their ideas of Revelation. But here... It's telling you plainly, as plain as day in the English. I'm reading it for you. Let him that hath understanding, using the gematria, count the number of the beasts. What's the number of beasts? Well, it is the number of a man. Which man? Caesar. Nero Caesar. Which Caesar? The one that adds up to 666. And in some manuscripts, it's 616 instead of 666. And because it is 616, then what happens? Uh, other manuscripts have 616 here instead of the 666. It's interesting. So even the manuscript evidence that we have supports this theory because there's two different manuscripts with different numbers because there's two different ways to spell it. So they're, they're protecting this math. They're wanting the math is what's ruling, not the actual letters on those manuscripts. But they're preserving this tradition. So translated into Hebrew in a particular way, the Greek term for beast also comes out to be 666. And of the beast comes out to be 616. So both beast and Nero, when you add it up, comes out to 616 or 666, depending on how you do it. Now, one last 
first passage of scripture, and then I'm going to help you understand what's going on in John. It says in Luke 20, verses 34 to 38, And Jesus answering said of them, The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world and the resurrection from the dead, neither marry nor given in marriage, neither can they die anymore. That's the reason why they don't have to get married. For they are equal unto the angels, and are the children of God, being the children of resurrection. What is he saying? We've got Sadducees who do not believe in angels. They do not believe in the resurrection. They come to Jesus. A woman has a husband, and another, and another, and another, and all of her husbands die, and then finally she dies, and in the resurrection, who, whose wife is she with all those husbands? And Jesus says, when you get there, there's no more marriage. Why? Because there's no need for marriage, because the primary driver for marriage in the Bible is for procreation. And we die, we need to procreate to replace ourselves. And that's just simple. The logic of the Bible is that simple. And so, no children, that means that you don't have anyone to come after you, to take care of you, or to carry on your family name. And everything that you work for is gone. And so that's the simple logic. And so, when you're in the resurrection... You don't need children anymore because you don't die anymore because of what Jesus has done. And so, interestingly, they are equal unto the angels. So they're just like the angels. And the fact that they no longer die, those who are in the resurrection do not die. So they're equal in that sense to the angels because neither do angels die. And they're children of God. So equal unto the angels and equal to the children of God. This is this phrase, benai el Elohim. Being the children of resurrection, now that the dead are raised, even Moses showed at the bush when he called out the Lord God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and God of Jacob, for he knew that God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live unto him. So I want to go back to this phrase. Okay, this phrase. This is the sons of God, the children of God, but not Elohim. This is specifically talking about a group of individuals whether it be in the Hebrew scriptures or in the literature between our testaments. After the close of the Hebrew Bible, which we call the Old Testament, and before we have the New Testament, some people call that the intertestamental period or the period of silence, 400 years of silence, but actually there's a lot of writing going on at that time, and they're writing a lot of things. And when they're writing those things down, what do we have? We have... Lots of people writing the Jewish thought, what they think, what they understand. And this is the understanding that carries into the New Testament. And so they have this understanding. And these beings that are not angels but have wings are known as the sons of God. These are divine guardian throne uh, cherubim and seraphim type creatures that we talked about. So we talked about this in our Under the Wings series uh, broadcast. And so... This is the sons of God, and you'll see them in Genesis 6, when the sons of God came down into the daughters of men, the Benai Elohim. And so we're, we're tying this, and we're, John is starting his gospel out with that, starting with Jesus, the Word made flesh, but also just prior to the Word becoming flesh, is us being born, and we're equal to the angels, because we do not die, because we're born from above. It's a supernatural rebirth you don't climb back in your mother's womb it's not physical it's not the will of men it's by god it's a supernatural thing that happens now interesting if you add the letters up of this phrase what do you get 
you get the exact number of fish that are in John 21:11. And so that's the argument being made by some scholars, including my mentor, is this is designed to get the disciples to understand they're getting back on mission. When Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, it was a merciful act. It was a merciful act that sent them out of the garden. Okay? Sent them out of the garden because God was getting them on mission. While they were in the garden, God provided everything. But he designed them in Genesis 2.15 to be gardeners, to go out and to cultivate the land outside the garden. And so they are supposed to do that. They're supposed to cultivate, work the land so they can live in the garden, live in God's presence, and go out. But instead of going out like they're supposed to, like King David, instead of going out to war, what does he do? He stays home and he ends up with Bathsheba. He ends up killing Uriah. He ends up all this mess because he did not go out. Adam and Eve were supposed to go out. They eat the forbidden fruit that they were not supposed to eat at that time. And they go in the middle of the garden instead of going out. The exact opposite of what they're supposed to do. They're supposed to go out and work the earth and bring life from the earth. And God, merciful in his mercy, gets them back on mission and sends them out of the garden. And Jesus is sending Peter and the disciples who have betrayed him, who ran away from him, and sending them back on mission to do what he's wanting them to do. So Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden. No, that wasn't a punishment. They were kicked out of the garden. Yes, they were punished because they could no longer be in the presence of God. They lost the glory that they had. They were naked, found to be naked. They needed uniforms, so God made uniforms for them so they could get to work. And so God gives them, graciously gives them uniforms to go to work. They go out and work, but they cannot now return to the garden. Now they don't have that rest inside the garden. They have to remain outside and work for everything by the sweat of their bow. So instead of receiving freely, they have to work the land. And they were supposed to work it anyway, but now they're at a disadvantage, an extreme disadvantage in their fallen state. And so you have similar heavenly beings following in Genesis 6 who come down into the daughters of men and produce those giants we've been talking about, the Nephilim. And you have that going on in Genesis 6. You have that happening, and they're known as the Benai Elohim, the sons of God. But then what we had in, in the passage I just read to you, that we, when Jesus is talking about marriage in the resurrection, he said there's no marriage in the resurrection because now we are equal to the angels. Now those angels in Genesis 6 became equal to us, came down and did what we do. They didn't need to, but they did, and they produced the giants. We talked about how... Joshua defeated the giants. David had to complete the process and kill some more giants. And so we had that to deal with. But it was the spirits of the giants that we understand those spirits of the giants are the demons of the New Testament. And the second Joshua, Jesus in the Hebrew, in the Greek, Jesus is Joshua in the Hebrew. So it's the same word. The King James mistranslates that Greek word and thinks it's Jesus, and it should be Joshua. 
in the book of Hebrews. And so that's what you have going on here. So you add these letters up this phrase and it comes up to 153, which is the exact number of the fish. And they're big fish because we're talking about these big beings. But then what is he saying? I want you to go out and get these people and bring them in the family. This is your great commission. I have given you power, you disciples who messed up to get you back on mission, to get you out there, to cast your nets and bring the family in. It's not a specific number like the 144,000 of the Jehovah Witness. It's not that at all. It's not meant to be specific for that purpose, that there's only 153 people going to get saved. It's representing all that God has chosen to be in his family, that we go out there, cast nets, and bring all those in that need to be brought in. And so that's what it's referring to. And so I wanted to share this teaching to get it out there to let you understand in honor of my mentor, Dr. Heiser, what he does with the 153 fish in John 21. We have the same mission to go out and bring them into the family, just as we talked about in Easter. And there's Galilee, all the way back to our Christmas message. Galilee that we talked about in our Easter message. We got everything that we talked about. We're printing all these pieces together, even in the post-Easter service. Here we are, and we're still doing it, and we're still laying it out and letting you see what's going on here. We hope you enjoy these messages. I did this because my dad's a fisherman and I wanted him to enjoy this fish tale. <laughs> the tale of the fish. Hallelujah. And I hope you're enjoying our broadcast and we want you to join us next time and come back as we continue on in our journey. God bless you. We hope you enjoyed this broadcast. You can find out more about us at dken.cc That's D-K-E-N dot cc we look forward to seeing you next time god bless you